We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of Everyday Acupuncture. Today is an encore interview with my good friend Josh Lerner. He was on recently. We were talking about orthopedic acupuncture and toward the end we started getting into fat. There was something that Josh had said uh, toward the end of that interview about the conventional understanding of dietary fat that it wasn't just wrong but it was dangerously wrong. So... We're going to dig into that and a whole bunch of other things that all have to do with fat, how good it is for you, overcoming the fear of fat, and just why the heck fat is so good after hearing for 50 years that the damn stuff will kill you. Josh, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Michael. This is going to be, this is going to be fun, as always, talking with you. Okay, so, so just what is it about the conventional understanding of dietary fat? That's not just wrong, but it's dangerously wrong. Well, it really comes down to the, uh, the demonification of saturated fats and animal fats that we've been eating as a species for our entire existence as a species, and sudden changing back in the uh, mid part of the 20th century to emphasizing vegetable oils. And the basic idea behind the switch was that if we stop eating animal fats, we'll have fewer instances of uh, cardiac disease and other problems like that. And of course, we started being told to start eating more vegetable oils like uh, safflower oil and sunflower seed oil and canola oil. And there was you know, no positive change in our health for that. In fact, probably many negative changes. And it really... Uh, comes down partly to economics and the various uh, the the strength of the seed oil industry in the U.S. and the corn oil in particular uh, was a huge one, and we started eating all of these vegetable oils instead of the normal animal fats that we had eaten for millennia and many many millennia: uh, butter, 
beef and lamb tallow, lard. Schmaltz. Uh, Don't forget the schmaltz. Schmaltz. Uh, yeah, actually, I have an entire uh, – one of the books that I was going to recommend was called The Book of Schmaltz. It's a great a recipe book, which we can get into later. But yeah, so duck fat, chicken fat, goose fat. Um, and the other thing is, you know, throughout human history, throughout really all of uh, the existence of, of you know, biological life on the planet, animals, when they eat other animals, they tend not to really – eat uh, just all the lean muscle. They go for the organs. They go for all the visceral fat because that's where all of the nutrition is. Um, and it's more, you know, if you see a, an animal carcass on the side of the road that's been eaten by other animals, if anything is left over, it's going to be muscle meat. You know, the first thing that happens is the all the, the really nutritious bits on the inside, including all the fat and the organs where all the, the vitamins are, and that's what goes first. And it's so it's kind of on an, in an evolutionary sense, really, really recent that we've made this bizarre change. Yeah. What prompted that change? Like, uh, you know, you were saying in the middle part of the last century, uh, you know, there were the oil industries and, and that sort of thing. They had their influence. What else was going on that would get us to go away from the animal fats and and, you know, really toward, well, the vegetable oils and the sugars, too, for that matter. That's actually a whole other show. Let's, yeah, that's yeah, a whole other just, show. That's a whole other show. We'll just keep it to the fat. How, what, who started demonizing the fat? Well, I think the, the, the clearest and kind of simplest explanation that I've heard is that it comes down to, uh, as I mentioned, like the, the corn industry. Because, you know, corn is... Is it the most uh, productive cash crop in the U.S., I think? You know, between corn and soybeans. And also highly subsidized by the government. And highly sub exactly. And so you have uh, these industries that are trying to, you know, promote their product. And if they can, in addition to promoting the use of their, of those seeds as feed for uh, livestock, um, also use some of the other byproducts of that process form of oil then that's even more you know more profit that they can make and so that's one of the explanations for why there was this great push to start including corn oil and soybean oil in all of our processed foods and to recommend that we use it instead of the other fats we've been eating there was a there were um, ad campaigns to convince housewives to uh, start using some of the newfangled uh, hydrogenated vegetable oils in place of lard for baking all of their pies and and cookies and stuff and you know using this very inflammatory language of uh, you know around health and and weight gain and and uh, things like that to try to convince people that all of the fats that they were using on a daily basis for their food was really bad for them and it's you know it's a matter of just follow the money. And then, you know, the American Heart Association, I think, really got on board with that and was promoting the switching to vegetable oils. And uh, yeah, so it's, you know, in addition to that, you know, going and kind of bringing some of the carbohydrates back into it, again, the the entire industry around wheat and uh, other cereal crops are kind of behind the whole promotion of having like breakfast cereals as being a healthy start to your day, right? So eating huge amounts of just carbohydrates in the morning in the form of, you know, dried cereals that have lots of added sugar to them. That really started with a push from the, the cereal growers. 
And, you know, before that, people were not just eating large amounts of, of uh, just pure refined carbohydrates like that as part of their meals. And it was a really, it was a very specific change that happened. Um, and so both from the kind of cereal uh, growing industry and from the, uh, the like the corn and uh, soybean growers, you have this push to kind of demonize someone to, that's going to be a competition. And so this whole idea of a low-fat diet and the fats that you do eat should be now coming from vegetable sources, that's really when all that started to take hold. At least that's the, the simplest and kind of most common explanation for why that uh, transition happened in the mid part of the 20th century. Right, yeah. And, you know, there's a number of interesting books, Gary Taub's in particular, um, in his Good Calories, Bad Calories, really um, digs into it like the investigative reporter that he is. I mean, if you, if you want the details, that book is as thick as a telephone book. Yeah. Wait a minute. Telephone books don't exist anymore. Um, as big as a telephone book used to be. Exactly. We have to talk to our, uh, our, our new millennial uh, audience. That's right. We can't uh, say hang up also when we end this call. We can't say hang up the phone anymore because no one knows why. Why would you use that word? I don't know. I thought a hang up was something that – yeah, anyway – Anyway, so <laughs> well, we have hang-ups about fat. So that's yeah, we have hang-ups about fat. That's what we're here about today. So let me ask you this: This is on a, a more personal note. You grew up in the time of uh, fats. You know, animal fats are bad. Uh, vegetable fats yes, are I good. Did. And what what was it that took you down this other path? What kind of woke you up to it? And what were the resources at that time that you? leaned on that gave you this new perspective? So I think my perspective probably shifted about 15 years ago. Uh, I, yeah, as you said, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, the house always had loads of uh, polyunsaturated vegetable oils and Crisco in it, and my mom would make chocolate chip cookies with, uh, with Crisco. Um, and we had you know, margarine. We spread margarine on bread. Oh my God, that stuff was so heinous. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I basically grew up on butter, and at a certain point, uh, margarine showed up in the house because it was supposed to be good for us. Right. I could not stomach it. Yeah, no, it's, it's awful. And it's, it's just what, what was there. That's what you kind of grow up with. I mean, I know people who actually prefer the taste of margarine to the taste of butter because that's what they know. That's what they kind of grew up with. So. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think it was right about the time I was ending acupuncture school, and it didn't have anything to do with acupuncture school per se, but at the time I was also involved with a group that was interested in uh, meditation and diet and kind of Taoist philosophy. And one of the members of the group sent out a link in an email to a website for the Weston A. Price Foundation and said, hey guys, this is kind of interesting. And so for people who don't know, uh, Weston A. Price was a dentist in the, guess, the early part of the 20th century, and he was interested in dental health, and, and he was interested in how people around the world uh, manage their dental health and what their teeth actually looked like. And so he traveled all around the world visiting all sorts of cultures and looking at their teeth, and cultures that had maintained their kind of pre-industrial diets so diets that um, were traditional and had been maintained since before the Industrial Revolution and since before the, the advent of a lot of 
uh, highly refined foods and things like that. And what he found was that all over the, the globe, whether it was, and I, I don't remember which of these specifically he met, he went to versus ones that were talked about in research later on, but whether he was talking about like an isolated group of dairy farmers in the Swiss Alps versus Australian Aborigines uh, compared to uh, the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, that all of these cultures, as disparate as they were, they shared certain uh, commonalities with their diet. A high high reliance on animal fats and organ meats, almost no refined plant material, uh, refined carbohydrates. So they would eat carbohydrates in the form often of, you know, roots and tubers or grains that had been uh, sprouted to make some of the nutrients more available to them. Uh, Relatively small amount of just raw vegetables, but always, but at least some along with lots of fermented vegetables, uh, lacto-fermented vegetables and uh, dairy products, like different types of yogurt, things like that, or whether you're talking about things like sauerkraut or kimchi or, you know, something, things that are fermented. Mm -hmm. Things that are living. That are living, exactly. And so throughout all of these different cultures, he found these similar ideas. And so the the Weston A. Price Foundation was started to promote dietary ideas based on his findings, that the, the way if we want to be healthy, in the way that these particular communities were. And the thing that he noticed was that these communities had incredibly perfect and healthy teeth and jaw structures. They didn't have like, you know, uh, receding chins and they didn't have problems with their teeth with decay the way that a lot of uh, modern uh, people that he knew were having. You know, as a dentist, that was what he was focused on. So he was looking at their dental health, but then he found that in general, they were just much healthier. They had healthier children. They had lower mortality rates. They had ways of ensuring that both the elderly and pregnant women uh, got the specific nutrients that they needed. You know, they have very, they have much more specific needs than just, a, you know, some otherwise healthy, you know, 25 year old who uh, doesn't have those extra strains on their body from either old age or pregnancy. And so he noticed that they would reserve certain even more nutritious foods with lots of, of the fat and all the fat soluble vitamins in it for the elderly and for, um, for pregnant women. And so that they have a, a website you can go to the, the Weston A. I think it's westonaprice.org. I think it is. I'll, I'll make sure it's on the show notes page. Yeah, and it's the you know the tone of a lot of the articles. They have loads of articles talking about fat, talking about the importance of uh, good quality dairy products, um, all of the the dangers and the problems with the ideas about diet that we've come up with over the last 50 years, the tone can be very alarmist and it can be off-putting for some people. And even with that, and even if you don't completely agree with every uh, every point they're trying to make, there's a huge amount of just really useful information on the uh, the website. And I, I spent years really having that be the basis of what I was doing with my diet. Yeah. I guess the other thing that, that happened was also at about the same time, I decided I wanted to lose weight. And so I did the Atkins diet for a few years. Uh, my wife and I both did it, which is a, you know, the early stages of the Atkins diet are really extreme. Like you're eating massive amounts of fat and protein and like no carbohydrates at all. And although it's, I'm not it's that basically ex- a ketogenic diet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a completely ketogenic diet. And I did really well on that diet. I was on it for a few years, but then as my uh, exercise increased and I started needing more carbohydrates. 
I gradually kind of started adding more carbohydrates back in. But still, I, it's one of the things that I often recommend people is, you know, get the get Atkins basic book and at least go through the process of going through the first one or two stages of that diet over the course of a few months just to see what it's like to not eat carbohydrates. You don't have to do that for your whole life. But having the experience of going off carbohydrates and seeing the changes in your mood, the energy level, uh, cravings for food, what happens to your appetite, um, how your sleep improves, and having a having that as a baseline so that you get a visceral understanding of what the effects of of sugar are and what the effects of fat are in your body, it's really helpful. And I I've, I don't think I've ever been as strict about like reducing carbohydrates as I was in that period. And again, that was thinking about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's still to this day is something that is influencing how I think about how I think about food. Even though now, I mean, if, you know, we'll eat pasta every now and then, you know, maybe once a month or something, and I'm not afraid of having a bite of bread somewhere. You have already fundamentally changed your metabolism by being away from the carbs for as long as you've been away from it. I want to I get back for just a moment to the Weston A. Price thing and what you said about the tone of their work. And that was the, my first introduction to a higher fat diet, and it came through you. And I remember looking at that website and going, man, these people are like screaming banshees yeah, about yeah. fat. It, it was a very almost inflammatory. Oh, it uh, can be, yeah. Yeah. And I, I've realized over time, as I have changed my diet and as I have come around to thinking about things in a different way, partially by reading other resources and then coming back to Weston A. Price's site and, and looking at it, some of it is that, yes, they are on a mission. And the other piece is, I don't think any of us like having our beliefs challenged. Yeah. And I grew up with the fear of fat. It's taken a long time to get over that. And because they are so pro-fat, I, I think it was just kind of tripping my triggers for, wait a minute, you're turning my world upside down in a very Alice in Wonderland sort of way. And that was incredibly uncomfortable. Absolutely. Because when I, I was just going back and I hadn't looked at the website for a while and I went back and was reading it. And my impression of it now is that it's much less inflammatory than I remember it being at first. Um, there's still some of the articles that have a much have a tone that's much more like that, but it's I think the uh, the emotional reaction that you can have seeing the information for the first time amplifies any of that aspect of it in your in your perception. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be much kind of angrier and inflammatory and just kind of looking for you know seeking kind of attention in the in the culture, but. I, the other part about that is that you also mentioned is that they are kind of on a mission. And I think if they had not been or if they were not as as kind of inflammatory as they are, I wouldn't have heard about them and I wouldn't be – it wouldn't have made enough of an impression on me to think, well, these seem to really believe this. Maybe I'll take a look at it and see what happens. If they'd been very nice about it, I probably would have said, oh, yeah, it's an interesting idea, but whatever. But that uh-huh. sense of conviction that comes from being willing to stand up and say things that might really offend a lot of people um, has this, this sense of compelling power behind it. So yeah. I, I can see kind of why they, they do that. They, they kind of don't have much of a choice if they're going to – lies with a lot of movements that challenge people's normal expectations. It, you have to kind of be 
much more inflammatory than you may even want to be just to get people to listen. Exactly. And we're coming up to the end of the presidential cycle here. So uh, we all know a whole lot about that. We're not even going to get into it here. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, Atkins. Everybody has heard of Atkins, I think. And there seems to be this, I don't know how to say it. People go, oh, yeah, I've heard about Atkins, or I'll mention ketogenic to patients or high fat. And they go, oh, yeah, well, isn't that just Atkins? And I hear it with a very dismissing tone. There's something about Atkins, even though it's incredibly effective. And in many cases, uh, modern metabolic research has shown how and why it's so effective. And yet it is often completely dismissed out of hand by people. How did that happen? What's going on here? Well, I think it's because it became so popular very quickly. I mean, it had been around since, when, did, when was this book first published? In the 80s, maybe? No, I think it was uh, the 70s. In the 70s, right. Because I remember my um, dad doing it when I was a kid. And I remember, I, mean, I remember when I told my mom that I was doing it, she's like, oh yeah, I think I remember doing that back, you know, and I, I think she might have uh, read the book back in the 80s. Um, and so it had been around, but then all of a sudden, sometime around 2000, between 2000 and 2005, it became, it like blew up. It became this huge thing. And people, I think the same thing is now happening with like CrossFit and with all these other, and even I think with the, the paleo diet uh, community, that it becomes very popular and the, the most vocal members of the community become really annoying to listen to because they, it's all they talk about to all their friends. And so it used to be like there were jokes about uh, vegetarians and vegans. It's like, uh, how can you tell when the uh, vegan is in the room? It's like, don't worry, they'll tell you. Now the same jokes being made about paleo, being about <laughs> CrossFit. So whatever is kind of most popular at the moment and whoever, whatever is most popular and has the most vocal proponents who just will not shut up about it to their friends – that's what produces this backlash. And the same thing happened with Atkins. Uh, when I was right about the time I was getting into it is when you started being able to see all these Atkins products on the shelves, all of the, the shakes, the protein shakes and the, the various like, you know, candy bars that were made with all sorts of things like coconut oil. But they also had some of those, uh, the alcohol based sugars, uh, what are they called? The, uh, xylitol, I think. Yeah, things like that that yeah. also just caused all sorts of digestive problems for people. But I think it was just the sudden influx and the popularity of it that, that really produced the backlash, um, along with some backlash from the part of the diet industry that was very, very committed to the you know the low fat, high carbohydrate way of doing weight loss. So there was like there was that aspect of the scientific and dietary community that was also involved in the backlash against things like Atkins in addition to just, you know, annoying, you know, converts who are now just not shutting up about it. Right. Having steak again for dinner. Exactly. Or breakfast for that matter. Oh my God. It's so good for breakfast. Yeah. Nothing like a ribeye for breakfast. All right. There's this idea that we often have in our culture that eating fat will make you fat. Yeah. And it's not true. Yeah. So tell us why that's not true. So it's, you know, there are a few different ways you can look at that. And the first is just looking at the idea of, you know, eating fat will make you fat. Kind of coming out of the, the basic idea we have of you are what you eat. Mm -hmm. And the way that, 
you know, when we describe someone who is overweight, we call them, you know, lard ass or, you know, the big tub of lard. And it's the, there's this underlying assumption that anything that you put into your body is what your body is going to become, which in a sense is true. But it's the, the image that we have of it is really kind of twisted of how that works, especially with regard to fat. Yeah. So, yeah, I was going to say metabolically, what's going on? So the, you know, there are a few different uh, theories about this, but basically, you know, if you want to look at it in terms of calories, which a lot of people nowadays are really saying is a very unuseful way of looking at diet, you know, if you consume a lot of fat, and especially because fat is produces much more uh, sense of satiation than carbohydrates does. You know, eating lots of fat is somewhat self-limiting. You're going to get full and your body is going to be getting the signal that it's getting the nutrients that it needs. And you know, the total amount of calories that you eat once you get used to eating fat is going to start going down compared to eating lots of either processed sugar or really refined grains, which A, will does not produce a sense of satiation. No, actually, the more you eat, the more you want to eat. Exactly. Right? It's like... Lay's potato chips, you can't eat just one. I was going to say that's a selling point, you know, for, for carbohydrates like that. And the other thing is, is the influence on uh, insulin, right? So carbohydrates, and to a certain extent protein, when you eat them, they produce this spike in insulin levels because it's the insulin that allows the your cells to absorb the carbohydrates to use for energy production and so you eat carbohydrates and you get a an increase in insulin levels and your body gets the signal that okay we've got all these nutrients when you get them into the cells and you keep doing that over time and just because of the way that the body responds to signals like that right if i keep flooding the the body with carbohydrates and spiking the insulin levels, it changes how the receptors on the cells function, the insulin receptors. You end up getting more of them because they, the body thinks, well, we need more. And the, when the number of those receptors increases like that, they, you know, it changes how they function overall, and it becomes harder and harder for the, uh, the cells to get the the, the carbohydrates into the cell for energy, which is kind of counterintuitive. Right. You would think if you had more receptors, you're going to have better flow exactly. of glucose into the cell. But what ends up happening is actually the opposite. Um, and not being a, not remembering all of my cell biochemistry at the moment, I, uh, I won't try to go into the specifics of why that is. But the, so the, basically there's this kind of cascading effect with having lots of especially refined carbohydrates like that. And other things that will slow down the absorption of carbohydrates in the, in the digestive system that will then therefore blunt some of that insulin response are things like having carbohydrates in the presence of fiber will help or protein or fat. Things that basically slow down the emptying of the stomach and will kind of help to spread out the absorption of the carbohydrates. So that's one way of of making sure that if you're eating carbohydrates that you're not invoking this really damaging insulin response. So if you're going to have pastries, make sure it's like French style with lots of butter in it, right? Mm -hmm. That's uh, or if you're going to if you have to have dessert, you know, have ice cream instead of just something else like cookies. Just all that fat will help. Uh, it's a little joke for, for people. So make sure you're getting the high fat ice creams. Exactly. That's my. That's always been my justification. If I or, decide or I want to. Or you could go sweet. completely raw vegan on that. 
and make an ice cream out of like a cashew puree, you know, with a little bit of flavoring and freeze that. It's creamy. It's fatty. And, oh yeah. Uh, you know, there's no sugar in it. Yeah. And so there are lots of other options for kind of getting that that sensation of having something sweet and uh, and with a good amount of fat in it. But so the, yeah, the the metabolic aspect and the in different parts of the diet and food spheres, uh, spheres of discussion, whether it's scientific or more popular, you know, there's so much conflicting information about what's actually happening metabolically, what's happening with um, even different types of fats, and so the. I guess the other really important thing that I think is important to mention about topics like this that tend to produce a lot of rancor and anxiety is, well, I'll put it this way, I've decided to start calling my diet the anti-anxiety diet, not because it cures anxiety, but because I've decided to refuse to make decisions about my diet based on anxiety. And that was uh, when I realized that, you know, having anxiety about my health or anxiety about what type of foods I should be eating be the thing that's driving me to make decisions. I I realized, you know, nothing good ever comes of that. Mm -hmm. And so doing research and being able to weed out any fear mongering or, or kind of anxiety producing information, especially when you can tell that it's, that it's basically a form of advertising for something. And to be able to also realize that ultimately it's your own life. You've got a relatively limited time on the planet. And to kind of maintain or regain a sense of autonomy about not just your ability to make choices, but taking responsibility for your own choices, doing the research yourself. And for me, it involves really deciding, yes, fat is good. I'm going to eat the way that, you know, the reports of how all of our ancestors ate for millennia and being willing to make that decision and kind of do that experiment on my own terms. Right. And live with the results that you get, good or bad. And live with, exactly, live with the results that I get. And I'll say, so for instance, back, especially when I was doing strict Atkins and I was, I mean, every, every day for breakfast, I would basically have a, about a cup of half and half mixed with cream with several tablespoons of butter kind of thrown in there. And I would have that once or twice a day and then have dinner and my cholesterol dropped uh, down to like 180, I think, from up above 200. And even then, the whole cholesterol level thing, you know, is another huge topic. You know, there's some members of the of the community around healthy fats that say it's entirely normal to have cholesterol that's somewhere between 200 and 240, that that's not a problem. And that actually, you know, a lot of the research shows that the lower your cholesterol drops, the higher your mortality rate is and the, the less protective it is against heart disease, especially okay. with uh, older women, right? I think... Um, Middle-aged women and older, uh, the higher their cholesterol is, it's even more obvious that it's protective for their, for their heart. I hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. That would be you. You could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback. 
and ideas for future shows. So send those along too. Thanks again for listening. And now on to the second half of the show. Protective for their heart. That goes completely counter to the common thoughts about it. So let me ask you this. I mean, it's, it, it's simple, proven medical science that people who die of coronary heart disease, you know, they die of a heart attack, you do an autopsy, you open up their coronary arteries, and it's full of cholesterol. So now you, were just, you just said higher levels of cholesterol equal less heart disease. Yeah, so there are actually there are two aspects to that. Uh, one is just recently, I don't remember where this was, I was reading about this, that there was a study, I think it was at UCLA a while ago, sometime in the last few decades, where they looked at the, uh, the cholesterol levels in the blood of everybody who had come into the hospital immediately after having suffered a heart attack. So it's normal for cholesterol levels to drop about, I think, 48 or so hours after a heart attack. Uh, but these were people who had just had it, so it was before, the, before that drop would have occurred. And this, we're talking, I, I want to say it was like 50,000 or 100,000 cases that mm. they were looking at. Good-sized sample. Yeah, and they found that actually, on average, the people who came in right after a heart attack had lower than average cholesterol levels. Uh, based on their blood work. And, of course, the study was ignored um, because the way that the medical industry works or the, the, the food industry also. Well, actually, I think, it's, I think it's the way the human mind works. When we've got a certain belief, we've got a point of view, we get some conflicting information and we go, that can't be right. Or I'll set that aside and think about it later. Or we just plain flip and ignore it. It's like, I have no idea how to make sense of that. Or you just kind of come up with an explanation for why. Well, so we found this, which uh, we weren't expecting, but it's probably just an artifact of the data, or it's there's something else. And you know, you can we're masters at rationalizing things that uh, don't fit into our logical schema. Yes. Uh, so that's one part of it is that actually there is no correlation between having higher cholesterol and an increased risk for uh, heart disease. The other thing is. You know, cholesterol is a molecule that is used for, among other things, repair of the body. So when you see lots of cholesterol lining arteries, uh, what you're seeing is the body responding to some type of damage. And so looking at the, the body's response to the damage by looking at the cholesterol that's kind of starting to accumulate against the sides of the arteries and saying we have to lower the cholesterol is kind of like looking at, say, a, uh, see, say you're a chef and you keep cutting your fingers with the knife that you're using because your knife is really sharp. So you got Band-Aids all over your fingers. You go out and you know, you're going out with your wife and she sees you're covered in Band-Aids. It's kind of like saying, oh, I need to take away his Band-Aids because there's something, something – something's wrong there. He has too many Band-Aids because I'm seeing them all over his fingers. So that's that's one of the other ways of looking at what's happening, and the inf and the problem, of course, with cholesterol is and the one of the topics that's become more talked about in the last uh, decade or so is that inflammation is actually a much more serious issue than the the presence of cholesterol. That it's inflammation is what's causing the accumulation of the cholesterol and and damage to the blood vessels from inflammation and other causes, and that the fact that the cholesterol is now caking onto it and trying to to heal it is really a 
a sign of something else that's going on and not the main problem. You know, that's a really interesting perspective that the cholesterol is a sign of something going wrong. It's not the, it's not the wrongness itself. Right. It's, it's actually the body doing the best it can to repair and restore itself. And from a very linear perspective, we look at it's like killing the messenger instead of listening to the message. That's a really I hadn't thought of that phrase for that, but that's a really good uh, a really good way of looking at it. I think there's a whole bunch of new metabolic research out there these days that points to the benefits of fat. Why should we believe it? You know, I'm just I just want to play devil's advocate here for a moment. Fifty years ago, we were told eat this way, you're going to live better, you're going to live longer. Hey, it's science, it's research. You know, what's not to be believed about it? And now we're having other metabolic researchers, you know, the guys who wrote the, uh, I forget his name off the top of my head, um, The Art of Low-Carbohydrate Living, right? He's not a dietitian. Right. He's a, he's a metabolic researcher, right? He's a, he's a research geek. Yeah. That's how he found this stuff. And, but again... Why should we believe research when research hasn't done that well by us in the past? That's a really fantastic question and one that there really is not a good answer to, especially because, as is recognized now in the scientific community, there is a crisis about scientific research and the way it's interpreted, the way it's funded, the way that studies are done, uh, reliability reliability across studies, you know, the more the more this is becoming an issue in the scientific community, the more you start hearing about people going back and doing, looking at kind of groups of studies and finding that when you have a bunch of different studies that are all studying the same thing, that the results and the, the conclusions they come to are just widely disparate. Right. You, uh, what are those? Uh, meta-studies. Yeah, meta yeah, that's that yeah. was the word I was looking for. I was trying to walk around that word because I, I was having word-finding problems. Uh, now that I'm in my 40s, it starts happening. And so it's really, it is really a huge problem. And so what that means for someone who's interested in looking at the effect of fat on the diet and fat on health, it really does present a problem because the, you know, in a sense, logically, if all of the research that we've been relying on for the last 50 years had told us that fat is bad or that animal fats in particular are bad, and that research is suspect due to who's funding it and how it's been interpreted by the medical community and everything else. And now we have new research that's showing the opposite. Why would we believe that? Why is that any different? And it's and this is something that, you know, as a as a healthcare provider and talking with patients, and I'm sure I'm willing to bet a large amount of money that you've had the same experience that patients come in. And they say, yeah, you know, I don't know what to believe anymore. Yesterday bacon was bad. Now bacon's good. No one knows what they're talking about. And there's just the sense of frustration and a sense of resignation almost about, you know, there's no way that I can actually know what's going to be good for me anymore. And there's a sense of, yeah, hopelessness. Um, and I, I really don't have a really good way of, of addressing that, at least with patients, aside from, from my own, you know, my own self kind of having come to terms with the fact that, like I mentioned before, this is my brief time in existence on this, you know, incredibly beautiful planet. And I'm, I have to make some decisions. I'm going to look at all of the evidence available and use my own kind of logic and reasoning. 
So looking, for instance, at the fact that when a when a living thing is created, you know, whether it's in an egg or in a womb, what's the the most important nutrient, like a like in an egg, right? You have the yolk, which is what provides all of the nutrient to allow something to grow. It's fat and cholesterol, right? Mother's milk, mass along with some carbohydrates. It's a massive amount of saturated fat and cholesterol, and those are the things that are what allows a uh, an embryo and just a small little creature that's going to grow up into this big other creature. That's what allows it to grow. If those were such dangerous substances, why is that what we rely on to grow? And of course, you can talk about you know our, the changes in our metabolic needs from a from an embryo to a full-grown person. But then looking at the fact that throughout human history, those are the foods that we've always relied on and looking at how recent it is that we think that that's wrong. Um, and so that, you know, using that basic sense of reasoning, which granted can always lead you astray because your our sense of reasoning and looking at basic facts in front of us is far from fallible. And we want to, you know, we want to think we're doing the right thing. We all like to think that we've got it dialed in or, or we want to have it dialed in. And we want to be the member of the, the group that's winning. Yes. Right? The group, the right group. We want to. And the other, the other I guess, aspect that, that plays into this is also our, our need to kind of deal with a sense of authority for our decisions. Where does the sense of authority for us to make decisions comes from? And for most of us, it's listening to authority figures. And there's there's a whole other topic we can get into about the neurological basis for authority and our the evolution of our sense of self consciousness. And it's a really it's something that's been on my mind a lot the last few years. Um, but in the same sense, with things like diet, we have, you know, in a sense, a neurological need to listen to authority, and that's how we evolved. And so when it comes to diet. Whatever the most persuasive voice is that we hear is what we're going to follow. And so realizing that and how that functions in our own mind and then being able to try to filter that out as much as we can so that the decisions we're making are actually based on our, our sense of logic and reasoning, uh, it's, a, it's a process and it's a matter of – takes a lot of energy and willingness to take responsibility for really – from the – you know, results of your actions, if you're yes. willing to do that. And paying attention. This, there's something I talk to my patients about. It's actually something that I do for myself. And um, it, it kind of dovetails a bit with your anxiety-free diet, right? There's a part of me that, that thinks that how I think about what I put in my mouth is also, I don't know if it's as important, but it's, it's, there's, there's a weighted factor there of importance of how I think about what I put in, in my mouth is at least as important as what it is that I'm putting in my mouth. Absolutely. So there, there's that. And, and, but the other thing is that I want to just get this here real quick before I forget. And you did this with Atkins. I've done this with fat. I've done it with a number of things. Give yourself your own free trial. Give yourself a period of time. Find out if it works for you. Right? Yeah. Do something... And like really do it. Uh, you know, we often, when people come into our clinics, maybe they've got a gluten sensitivity. And, you know, we'll often ask them just, hey, give up the gluten for a month. I'm not asking you to do it for your whole life, right? Do it as a test. Give it up for a month. See how you feel. Yeah. 
You know, and, and you can do this with your diet. You can do this with fats. You can do it with anything, really. To have the courage to do some self-experimentation and go on the authority, ready for this, of your own experience. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's a whole other huge topic. Also related to medicine, the, the idea of, of your own experience versus experience of other people that you've heard about, whether it's collected in the forms of statistical studies or just an authority figure. But no, I think I, I do the same thing with my patients and in terms of telling them to look at this as an experiment. And I found that that's actually the the most effective way of being able to have conversations with patients about topics that might be otherwise very either emotionally charged uh, or maybe a topic that they hadn't really thought about in those terms before. So it might be harder for them to kind of get wrap their head around the concept. And so usually the the phrase that I'll usually tell them if they especially if they bring up a, a an idea about whether it's their diet, about whether including more fats or cutting back on carbohydrates or even doing certain exercises, like uh, if they if coming with a certain type of low back pain and they say, yeah, so I just do lots of sit-ups every day. I do, I probably do 150 sit-ups and that's, and I do that and my back's still hurting, but you know, so phrasing it like, well, here this, you know, cutting out the sit-ups or cutting out the, uh, the uh, frappuccino or whatever uh, for a while would be a really interesting experiment to do because then you're going to really know what the effect of that is. Right. You'll have some data points. You'll have data points. And also getting people interested in a way of living their life that allows them to not just collect data, but that actually gain a sense of agency and of self and autonomy. And that actually, and realizing how much their decisions are actually affecting them. And phrasing it as, you know, this is, this is going to be a worthy experiment, regardless of what results you actually find from the experiment. This is going to be a really good experiment to, and interesting for you also. And then people also, they get very interested in it, as opposed to phrasing it in a way that is similar to the way things have always been phrased to them in the past, which is, look, if you want to be a good person, you're going to have to do this. Otherwise, you're not a good person. Right. You're irresponsible. I remember some years ago in Seattle, you made some pemmican that you brought into the oh, clinic. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> right. Uh, pemmican, oh, my God. Pemmican is like, what, 300% fat or something? It's like something all fat like and a little yes. bit of berries, a little bit of shredded meat. Yeah. I remember, I mean, you made it yourself. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and I'm going to talk to you in a little bit about how you actually make that uh, from scratch. But I, I just want to share with folks my experience of eating it. First of all... Don't had, scare them off. Well, no, I'm, I'm going to tell the truth. That stuff okay. was heinous. That stuff tasted like ruddy, musky animal, right? Yeah. It, I mean, it was just, I remember eating, it was just like, oh, shit, this stuff is, this is animal, you know? It, it was not particularly pleasant. I, I think it really needed more blueberries in it. <laughs> right. However... I remember 20 minutes later having this like profound low hum of intense energy. Like I was just plugged into a nuclear generator. Right. It was really interesting. And it was, I I mean, I was not fat adapted at the time. Right. Right. In fact, I was eating a fairly high carbohydrate diet at that point. 
And yet this incredible dose of really nutritious, I mean, this was like rendered from kidney fat or something. I can't remember what you made it out of. It gave a level of energy unlike any I've had because it was not a buzzy up jittery kind of energy. It was this low hum like I could run for days. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So the interesting thing now would be, I don't know when the last time you've actually had pemmican is, but what that would taste like to you now. That was the last time. That was, yeah. So uh, so lots of different ways of making pemmican. You can actually buy it now either online or even some stores that have, that's been made. I find that the stuff that you make yourself really tastes the best. But that would be really – that would be an interesting experiment for you to do. It would, right? and I like experiments. Yeah, it would be to see what it tastes like to you now because I had actually the same experience the first time I tasted it after I made it was, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for this. It was because we're just not used to food that has such a strong flavor. It's one of the the products of eating a high carbohydrate, bland diet, full of foods that have had have been processed um, into you know processed to death. That we don't know what what actual real food tastes like anymore, and it's kind of almost offensive when we actually taste that. I mean, I even had the same experience. I think the first time I had. Um, you know, like, you know, like raw honey or something that was just, it had still a lot of the pollen and stuff in it. It's so overwhelming. If when you're used to stuff that's basically just been purified and it's mostly just sugar and water at that point, that it's, it's, there's something that seems almost kind of threatening about it, you know? Well, my Um, taste buds certainly have changed. I would like to give it another try. My taste buds have changed as I've walked myself away from sugars and carbs. Because things that are what most people would call pleasantly sweet and delicious. I don't want it in my mouth. Yeah, they're like sickly sweet it's, now. It's sickly sweet. So, yeah, I'd like to give that a another go. So can tell you what, you, I can will you, make can some. Can you give us uh, – yeah, make some and send it. Because it's, I haven't made some um, for a little while now, so, and I've been meaning to make some actually now that I have a uh, – a food dehydrator so I can dry meat myself. So I'll tell you how to make it. That's what you were going to ask. That's what I was going to ask. So if people want to make their own, um, super fuel, how do you make this stuff? And, and, and what kind of fat is the best fat for making it anyway? So traditionally, and so pemmican is a form of food that's actually in some form relatively common around the world. The, the particular way that I made it and the, the use of the term pemmican really refers to a Native American uh, style of doing it where you would take rendered, rendered beef fat usually. And so you take fat and you render it, meaning that you cook it over a very low heat for a long period of time to drive out all of the excess moisture and to separate out a lot of the proteins and other things that are in it so that you're left with – you kind of you, – you pour it off and strain it after it's been cooking for a while so that you're left with just pure fat with no other impurities in it that would tend to make it spoil. Mm-hmm. So the pure rendered fat, which in the case of pig fat would be called lard, in the case of beef or lamb is called tallow. Um, chicken is schmaltz. Chicken is schmaltz, exactly. Oh, man, schmaltz on oh just God. spread on yeah. a piece of bread with some salt. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> so when you when you render fat like that, what you're doing is making it much more shelf-stable. And it then becomes – and also being animal fats, it's solid at room temperature. 
And so the fat will last for a very long time, unlike in its unrendered form, in which it's going to go rancid. So tallow, I have some, some uh, lard from some pigs that uh, a friend and I uh, slaughtered and butchered a few years ago that's uh, still really, really good. It's just this, it's, like, it's what Crisco was supposed to be, basically. Anyway, so you take the rendered fat, and then you take, and you melt it so that it's liquid, and then you take uh, basically beef jerky. And the best thing to use is beef jerky that is just, or buffalo jerky or deer jerky, any other kind of, of lean uh, dried meat and dried so it's pretty dry. And it needs to be crushed, whether you cut it into small pieces and then put it in a food processor. You want to get it into, I mean, I've, I have friends who've made it where it becomes almost like a powder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I would make it, it would get, you know, into shredded like little bits. And, but you want it to be very dry with as little moisture as possible uh, because moisture is going to be the enemy of, of being able to keep this for any length of time. Uh, and so I mean, the basic recipe is just to mix shredded, dried beef or, or jerky of some type of animal with rendered fat to a consistency that is, you know, the consistency can vary. If you use lots of meat and just a little bit of fat, you're going to get more of a kind of a cakey, uh, consistency. Whereas if you use more fat, you're going to have uh, a bit of a greasier consistency. Oh yeah. That, that stuff, that stuff you served me up greasy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, I'm trying to remember what the, when I was first making it, I was probably using, I was using a fair amount of fat. Yeah. And so also traditionally in, in the Americas, it would be mixed with bits of dried berries. Um, so blueberries or, uh, cranberries or herbs, uh, even you can use, if you want to make a savory one, you can use garden herbs, you know, dried herbs like that. Again, dried so that you don't have moisture in it. Other flavorings, you know, you could try making it with store-bought jerky that has like teriyaki sauce. Flavor. I've actually done that before. I didn't like the result as much. And it tends to have a little bit more moisture in it. Um, but that's really basically the recipe. And you know, if someone wants to make it, I would go online and just look up pemmican, uh, pemmican recipe on um, Google because there are, you know, there are lots of different variations of it, but it all comes down to just mixing crushed, dried meat with fat, and it's uh, and it lasts. It was forever. used. It lasts. It lasts forever. It was used. It was really important in the U.S. and in Canada. I know among uh, like trappers or anyone else who was out in the in the wilderness for long periods of time, not just Native Americans, uh, the Europeans who came in also discovered it and found that it was a great way to be able to survive doing long treks, whether you're a fur trapper or doing some other kind of work that keeps you away from a steady source of food for long periods of time. So it's basically, it's a hiking food. It's like an energy bar. Yeah. The original energy bar. Let's, the original uh, energy bar. The, oh, I just, I just wanted to add that also in other cultures, you have the same idea of preserving meat in fat it's just it's all over the world, right? So like confit, right? Like duck leg confit is kind of the same thing. The duck leg isn't being dried first, but you're still preserving it in rendered fat. The same thing with uh, uh, riettes in uh, French cooking, right? So basically taking pork and cooking it in its own uh, rendered fat for a long period of time and then grinding it up and then putting it in a jar and it having a big layer of fat on top. So it's not just... Uh, a basic idea from um, the Native American culinary tradition, but it's a fundamental human cultural phenomena that preserving 
proteins in fat, in rendered fat, uh, both for the nutritional component and for just preservation, being able to have food to eat. Uh, because foods historically have always been very seasonal. For instance, you would, you know, if you're raising pigs, you're generally going to slaughter them in the fall uh, and when it's cold out, and then you're going to live off of that for, you know, until the next year. And so making things like liver pate, which loads of fat, and doing things like riettes and other things where the meat can be preserved and provide you with, you know, larder throughout the whole the winter. Otherwise, you're going to have lots of problems. Same thing with preserved vegetables, right? It's another way of making sure that you have food long term. For our listeners who are considering dipping into a higher fat diet, what are some ways of beginning to approach it? I mean, I know there's there's some simple things like the, the so-called bulletproof coffee, where you throw some nice grass-fed butter and coconut oil into your uh, coffee and stick it in a blender. You know, you do that instead of adding, uh, you know, non-fat uh, milk and, and, and a couple of packets of sugar. What are some what you would consider accessible ways of beginning the journey into eating more, uh, a higher fat diet? I think you have to start with pleasure and with cooking and with engagement with your food. So the first advice I would give people, A, if they're not already cooking for themselves, if they have the time and the capacity to cook, to start doing that, even if it's just taking basic cooking classes or just getting recipes from, from your parents or your grandparents, uh, because I feel like fundamentally the most important thing is, even if you're not doing it all the time, the ability to really cook for yourself and to to feel completely engaged with your food at that level is really important. And then getting just some really good cookbooks that are not just lists of recipes, but you know the, the cookbook industry is so full of books that are not just full of good recipes, but that are really works of art and that are inspiring and that make you want to experience food and enjoy food in a good way. And so really kind of falling in love with the process of feeding yourself and of feeding your loved ones and your family and your friends and having that be the the basis from which you start doing this type of thing, I think is really the best way to go about doing it. Because otherwise, if it just becomes uh, another source of anxiety or sense of compulsion, then it's not sustainable. And as you mentioned, with the way that you think about the food that you eat is one of the factors that's going to affect your health. You know, what better way of doing that than having a sense of, of love and of pleasure and of sharing things with, with other people? You know, what other better way of doing it could there be, right? You know, there, we have such a view in this country of, I'm going to call it the tyranny of the macronutrients, that we think I'm supposed to get this much protein and this much fat and this much selenium and zinc and blah, blah, blah. And you know, we often think about, you know, am I, am I meeting my numbers and completely leaving out how's my experience of my nutrition? How's my experience of nourishing myself? Yeah, I mean, it's a product of anxiety. I think it's also a product in the, in the broader sense of anxiety, especially among uh, people who are also really interested in being as absolutely healthy as they can be to the point where it becomes a compulsion and they're exercising and working out trying to uh, look like a professional athlete or an Olympic athlete and kind of an inability to 
just appreciate your normal existence just as a human being, not having to be Superman, not having to make sure that every single piece of food that you put in your mouth is as absolutely nutrient dense as you can be, uh, as it can be. And just being able to, to not have to worry about those things. I mean, I, I think about, um, there's a great quote actually from Confucius that I'm going to, I'm going to get the details wrong, but in the, in the Analects of Confucius, he talks about, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a young man, when I was in my twenties, uh, I was really concerned with, uh, you know, the propriety of you know, these rituals when in my thirties, I, I cared about this. And he had this, this list as each decade as it got, as he got older, the specific things that he was involved in and trying to learn how to be a proper human being. And then he said, then in my, you know, as an old person or as it was in his sixties or seventies, I can let myself do what I want and not fear having kind of transgressed any, any improper boundaries. The idea being that once you get to a certain point of knowledge and once you get to a certain amount of self-cultivation, then you can kind of trust the fact that the basic decisions that you make based on what feels good and what feels right to you are going to be correct, right? It Granted, it takes some maturity. It takes some time of, of study and self-reflection to get to that point. But really, the point should be of, of living in general, and especially with things like diet, that you get to the point where you can trust your basic appetites and and the sense of pleasure that you have with food to guide you in the right direction, right? If you're not if you're not kind of mature enough yet, or if you're still if your system is still gunked up with lots of sugar, you know the things that feel right to you and that feel pleasurable are not going to be good for you. And so it's a the question of when do you know that's actually happened where you've reached that level of maturity is a is a good one. Yeah, and it takes some experimentation. It does, exactly. It's experimentation. It's willingness to take responsibility for doing the experiment yourself and living with the results. But doing that repeatedly over and over again, making lots of mistakes that are hopefully not, you know, long-term damaging for you, but that there's really no there's no replacement for just repeated experimentation and looking at the results. And it just, you know, at certain at a certain point in your life, you just start to get a feeling of, okay, now I think I can start, I think what I actually really want now is actually what's good for me. Um, but again, that takes, it partly just takes time. Yeah. Well, Josh, this has been fun. And uh, I need to go get some more pemmican. Okay. I will make some and send it to you in the mail because it will last in the, in the mail. So. All right. I'm looking forward to it. I'll, um, I'll eat it. And maybe do a quick little um, show afterwards. Do an update. I'll, I'll do an update. <laughs> we'll do the Pemmican update. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks again, my friend. Thank you, Michael. This was just fantastically fun. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time. Music